0: Good morning, everyone. Hey, if you have a Bible or a device, will you open with me to Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1, we'll be there together uh, in just a moment. Yeah, my name's Cody. It's uh, delightful to be with you. Uh, I uh, live in Calgary, Alberta with my wife and our two children. If writing a book or doing a PhD sounds glorious to you, I just want you to know that I spend half my time with my children and I was pooped on this morning. Not by my wife, uh, by my daughter... Usually, it's my son. Uh, My daughter is two. She is a delightful little human being. Uh, A little bit about her. Recently, someone gave her uh, the book, The Giving Tree. Have any of you read that book before, especially with young kids? You know the book, The Giving Tree? This uh, book was really significant for this individual in their childhood, and so they wanted to give it to my daughter, and instead of thanking the person, my daughter turned the book over, and on the back was a picture of Shel Silverstein. This is like fun for you who can Google things. You can Google Shell Silverstein now or later. And instead of saying thank you, my, my daughter said repeatedly, dis papa, dis papa. And so to this day, my daughter thinks that I wrote this book, The Giving Tree, and she thinks that my portrait is on the back of it. So that's great. Google Shell if you want to see what he looks like. The joke's on her because in 2007, when Facebook went public, my first ever Facebook profile picture was of Shell Silverstein. So she's smarter than you know. My son is Atticus. He's five months old. For perspective, my daughter is almost two and weighs 28 pounds, and my son is five months and weighs almost 20 pounds. And so we have, I should say I have affectionately started referring to him as Chunkicus instead of Atticus. And uh, he's a beautiful little chunky smiley boy. Hey, let me uh, extend my gratitude to, to David for having me here this morning. I I don't take it lightly just to have the opportunity to be here and to chat to you just for a few minutes about our scriptures and what it means uh, to follow Jesus faithfully uh, in your city and in mine as I'm continuing to pastor in Calgary. I know you did a full year on Revelation. Uh, Some of you may not have been here if you weren't or if you forgot, because sometimes we're here physically but not mentally. Are you with me? And if that's your experience, all of those are available on the podcast. But don't worry, I'm not going to cover all the content from a year's worth of Revelation in one day. But if you'll allow me, I would love to spend a few minutes together thinking about the book of Revelation just one more time. Does that sound okay? But I want to think about it from a specific angle or a specific lens. I want to talk about imagination this morning. And I don't know about you, but I have never myself heard a sermon on imagination before. And I have felt this growing or pressing need over these last few years, in particular as we've gone through COVID and as we face unique challenges as the church in the West, and maybe in some ways it feels like it's sort of difficult to trudge forward, or maybe you see news story after news story of a failing pastor or a falling church, and, and, and you begin to sort of see only what's directly in front of you. And one of the most pressing needs that I have felt over these last few years is that as the church in the West, we need a renewing of our imagination. And we need to start thinking more deeply about the role of imagination in our discipleship to Jesus. But more on that in a moment. Let me start with a quote from the Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann. It should be on the screen over here. Brueggemann, in his book, Prophetic Imagination, pens these words. He says, we need to ask if our imagination has been so assaulted and co-opted that we have been robbed of the courage or power to think in alternative thought. So here, um, Brueggemann uh, uh, sort of offers us uh, uh, one of the most sort of pressing needs that he perceives for us as the church, that we need to slow down at any given moment and reflect upon our imagination, to ask ourselves if maybe we've lost the ability to dream alternative dreams or to conceptualize alternative futures or to see beyond our current flesh and blood realities. Like when we look at the world around us, whether it be our family or our community or our our workplace, our business, our circumstances, have we been so maybe assaulted in, in various moments by heartbreak or frustration or loss that maybe we've sort of begun to lose our ability to sustain our vision for what Jesus wants to do in and through His church in this world. Have our circumstances made us feel, notice that language, feel as though there is no hope on the horizon? I don't know, I don't really know you personally, but like as we walk through valleys of shadow of death, Or as maybe we traverse through the wilderness, or face the dark night of the soul, or as we aim to be faithful as the empires of this world are pressing in all around us. I think these words from Brueggemann invite us to stare into the mirror and ask a really simple question, have we been robbed of our imagination? He continues with these words, the imagination must come before implementation. Because the very same royal consciousness, that's Brueggemann's language for the empires of the world, or if you remember from your series on Revelation, Babylon, the very same royal consciousness that makes it possible to implement anything and everything is the very same one that shrinks imagination, because imagination is a danger. Again, I think these words press a little further. Brueggemann is suggesting that the powers of this age, the sort of systems and structures, whether they be physical or spiritual, have one desire for us as their citizens to shrink our imagination. Now, why? If you're like me, you might wonder, why imagination? What's so threatening about imagination? Really, Brueggemann, is imagination really a danger or a threat? And I think imagination is dangerous because imagination is the canvas on which we begin to paint alternative futures. Imagination is the beginning of transformation. In fact, imagination is the seedbed of hope. If you eliminate imagination, you will eliminate hope. Are you with me? Eliminate imagination and you will eliminate hope. Because imagination allows us to see our world not as it is, but as it should be. Imagination permits us to shift our perspective in the midst of challenging situations. It allows us to begin us to see a way when we thought there was no way. It allows us to hear the voice beckoning us to move forward in the midst of our wilderness. And here I'm not talking about foolishness. I'm not talking about a kind of strange triumphalistic theology. I'm actually just saying that as we enter into the suffering and the heartbreak and the challenges of our world, that we also can keep looking up as we trudge forward, that we actually keep following Jesus. But that takes imagination because imagination helps us conceptualize the world as God longs for it to be and then to begin to embody that future world now in the present. Notice that for us as Christians, imagination is not about fantasy, it's not about fiction, it's not about fairy tales, but it's about the ability to dream dreams, to hear the murmurings of another world, to see a different future. If you're taking notes this morning, what I want to suggest to us, and I'll come back to this at the end, is that imagination is a weapon because it allows us to see higher and wider and beyond our present circumstances. As John says in Revelation, it allows us to experience an apocalypse. Our imagination allows us to pull back the curtain and and see the unseen realities of the present, but also to see the future and to remember as we live in the present that I have seen the future and it belongs to God. See, it's simply imagination helps us to look up to see higher and wider and broader and beyond our present circumstances. Walter Brueggemann concludes the section of the book with these words. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination. I love that turn of phrase. For Brueggemann, part of the prophetic task is not just to, to call the people back to faithfulness, but to stir up their imagination, to keep conjuring and proposing futures that are alternative to the single one that the powers of this age urge us as, as thinkable. And so, according to Brueggemann, then, the prophet doesn't just correct or, or call or, or confront the people, but the prophet stirs imagination When the people of God have become blind or deaf or numb without imagination for the ways that God might enter in and redeem and renew and restore their situation. The prophet needs to stand before the people and and stir their imagination based on the ways that God has acted in the past, based on the ways that he is acting in the present, and ultimately based on what we believe he's going to do in the future. In other words, the prophet needs to stand before the people and point to the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come and then allow the Spirit to begin to stir something in us that we would experience what Paul calls in his letter to the church in Rome a conversion of our imagination. We often translate as a conversion of our mind. Imagination, I think, is required if we're going to see the way God sees. Imagination is required if we want to again hear as God hears. And all of this leads me to one really simple question that I want to ask this morning that I've been asking myself over these last few months how's your imagination? And I think to speak honestly, I've just become convinced, at least in my city in Calgary, that one of the primary threats we are facing as the people of God right now is the loss of our imagination. I think it seems to me as a pastor that long before we lose faith or hope or love, Long before some of us might feel urged to leave the church or we trust in chariots or or horses or long before we might ignore the broken or the destitute or the marginalized, long before we fall into sin, we lose our imagination. And this is actually not a new problem, so take a deep breath with me. You see, the danger of losing, losing imagination is actually a really old problem. So John, who wrote Revelation, is writing from Patmos to seven churches in Western Asia Minor who had lost their imagination. You see, not only had they stopped loving their neighbor or had they accepted false teaching or participated in idolatrous practice or turned lukewarm, but they'd lost their ability to imagine the ways in which simple faithfulness, active discernment, witness, and worship could bring transformation in their community. They had lost imagination for the ways in which simple faithfulness can actually bring transformation. As the church felt like it was falling apart from the inside as Caesar was sitting on the throne, as violence appeared to be one of the most effective ways to move forward, which kind of created an impulse to protect their own tribe at the expense of others as they lived in fear of the sovereigns and the systems and structures with no hope on the horizon. John pens Revelation to these seven churches in Western Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, to stir their imagination. It was the late New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger who once said, Revelation is unique in that it appeals primarily to our imagination. Similarly, his student, Michael Gorman, who I'm sure was quoted often during your series on Revelation, he has a great book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. He says, Revelation can transform the imagination with respect to how we perceive and live in relation to God, others, and the world. You know, it's interesting, uh, writing on Revelation, when people find out that I was writing a book on Revelation, it, it stirs up some interesting conversations. Are you with me? Everyone seems to want to have one with me. Sometimes it relates to, like, clocks and maps and charts and timelines, and, and, and they want to show me their, their research about the end times. Sometimes that happens. That's really interesting. And it often leads to a few different points in the conversation. One is people will often say, wow, Revelation is one of the most relevant books of the Bible for our moment in time. And then I have to begin to play that fun game that we all, all play together when you're like, what do you mean by that statement? Because I, I agree that it's very relevant, but not because it predicts the signs of the times. But it's relevant because it's imagination-stirring literature that's calling us to faithfulness. But one of the other questions I get often is, why did John write in this very strange style of literature? Have you ever thought that? <laughs> You're like, why the dungeons and dragons? Like, why the beasts? And, and why the scorpions? And why are they stinging people for so long? Have you ever wondered? Maybe that's just me. They'll ask, why apocalyptic? Why not just the letter? And I think the answer is this. I think it's because visions can do something that arguments can't. Are you with me? I don't think that we need more arguments right now. I don't think that we need more apologetics or persuasive means or, or, or more, more ways to strong-arm one another into the kingdom of God as though that were possible. I don't think we need more arguments. What I think we need is to experience Jesus, to see Him as He is, to see what He's doing in the world, to see the curtain pulled back. In other words, we don't need arguments. We need visions that stir our imagination that rapture us from the mundane, that allow us to hear the voice of God and then enter back into our world as transformed people. Anyone fans of the Chronicles of Narnia? A few of you, maybe, those of you who have children. You know, it's interesting, the Pavensi children enter into that wardrobe and experience all sorts of things, yes? And then they return from those visions different people, Revelation is actually similar, that, that what we need is we need to see and to hear, and, mo- and most importantly, I think we need to feel deep in our bones the ways in which these visions can transform our way of being in the world. So, Revelation, as I'm sure you know, by design, is imagination-stimulating literature. It informs us that what we think is real is not as real as we think, that there's a deeper reality at work, you know, in the same way that we might interact with a great painting, I don't know if you love paintings. I'm a big Rembrandt fan, and I remember the first time I saw a Rembrandt in person. I thought, I'm here, and I've never seen one of these before, so I spent an hour sitting in front of it staring at this painting. To some of you, that's nothing more than sheer boredom, and I'm with you. My wife agrees with you. I just stared at this painting, and and the longer I stared at it, the more the depth of the images and the brush strokes and, and what it was that, that the artist was trying to do, it, it, it sort of started to stir my imagination the longer that I stared at it for the beauty and, and somehow how a painting can convey hope to us, how an, how an image can move us emotionally. Or maybe it's a song. I mean, music has this ability to do something to us, to cause us to feel and to think and to to move in different ways. We've all been transformed by songs in one way or another. Or maybe it's a drawing or a sculpture or a mural or a different piece of created art. You know, maybe it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe if you're anything like my wife. Any fans? Okay. Maybe not here my wife will be disappointed. Things like the Black Panther, or maybe it's works of fantasy or fiction. I mean, I mentioned Narnia, but maybe it's more like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Revelation is the artist's book. Are you with me? It's images. I, you know, it's funny, being at, at the, the camp this last weekend, um, a lot of people kept asking the worship team if we had planned to do songs that had so many lines and themes from the book of Revelation. And the answer is actually no, it's just that Revelation as a book has inspired so much of our worship music. And so many of the images stir the mind of the artist, and that's because often these pieces of art, these visions, these sort of rapturous moments that we experience, they evoke things in us, but they don't always explain. And Revelation is like that. It wants to, it wants to evoke things in us. It wants us to feel things, to imagine deep within our bones God's victory over evil, and then we begin to live with that kind of imagination. Good readers of Revelation read it more like Lord of the Rings than Paul's letter to the Romans. Are you with me? It definitely feels a lot more like it, doesn't it? As John's spirit-inspired images enter into our mind and do only what music or imagination can do, it transcends words by stimulating images that that become the port of entry into an alternative world, the world of the the dragon and the lamb. You know, the best advice I could give you in reading Revelation, if you want to come back to it this week and read it again, is just read it and get lost. Just don't get left behind. Are you with me? Wink, 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 wink. Okay. Sorry. I had to do it. When a joke like that has been written on a piece of digital paper, one must say it every time one must has a chance. Are you with me? Of course. Yeah. I just lost some of you eternally for that one. Okay. Here's what I want to do this morning. I I want to just show you in seven scenes for obvious reasons, I couldn't pick six. Are you with me? Um, In seven scenes, I just want to show you the ways in which John wants to stir our imaginations for what God is at work doing in our world, the ways in which he wants these images to get planted into our hearts and minds so that they transform the way we live. I just want to show you how if you're going to read Revelation well, and if you're going to read our scriptures well, you're going to need imagination. Does that sound good? So, Revelation chapter 1 then, the first scene that I want to look at, and we're going to go through these quite quickly. First, John wants to show us that God is standing in the middle of the churches. If you remember Revelation chapter 1, John uh, hears the voice that's like the sound of a trumpet from behind him, and John turns to see the voice, and he sees Jesus as he is. He sees him with hair like wool and, a, and, and eyes like torches of fire with a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. He's wearing a, a priest's robe. He looks like the Son of Man from Daniel and his feet are like burnished bronze. But John makes a very specific point in chapter 1, verse 20, we find out that the mystery of the seven stars that you saw upon my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven messengers or angels to the seven assemblies, And the seven lampstands are the seven assemblies. In other words, John sees Jesus as he is, but one of the most unique features of Revelation chapter one is that the image shows us that Jesus is stable and secure and strong. He is all of these things with eyes that can see through hearts and and a sword coming from his mouth that can cut through lies and speak truth. But beyond that, he stands in the middle of the church. He is holding it together. He is stabilizing it. While the visions might show us the immense power and beauty, it also shows us that, that Jesus is present exercising direction and supervision over his church. Jesus offers stability, assurance, and hope to his church because he stands at the center of the church. In other words, Revelation chapter 1 shows us that God is among us. Second, turn over a few pages if you have it open or scroll a little bit if you're doing digital Revelation chapter 4. Second, John shows us that God rules from the throne of the cosmos. Revelation chapter four verse one. Immediately, John, like Ezekiel, is taken up in a visionary experience. I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sitting upon the throne, and the one sitting on the thr- the one sitting was similar in appearance to jasper and carnelian, and there was a circle of light around the throne, similar in appearance to emerald. And all around the throne are 24 thrones, and sitting upon the 24 thrones are 24 elders clothed in white robes, and upon their heads gold crowns. And coming out from the throne are lightnings, voices, and thunders. In chapter 1, John shows us an image that reminds us that God is among us. And now in chapter 4, John wants to show us a vision where we are reminded that God is above us, ruling on the throne of the cosmos. When we look at the world, and and we might use John's language and say that it feels as though the dragon is winning, we're wondering if God is really at work, is God really reigning, is God really ruling, or think of these seven churches in Western Asia Minor, they see Caesar on the throne, Caesar rules, it's Caesar's empire, and then John shows them a vision, and it's actually not Caesar on the throne, it's God on the throne. The systems and structures and powers of this world, their time is limited It is not forever, and they actually do not sit on the throne of the cosmos. They are not steering or ruling history. And John wants to remind these churches, while you see persecution on the horizon, while you feel as though these sovereigns and these structures are the one who rules the world, they are not. God is on the throne. In other words, Revelation chapter 4 now shows us that God is not only among us, but God is above us. Turn over one page, Revelation chapter 5. John wants to remind us that God has conquered evil, not as a roaring lion, but as a slaughtered lamb. Remember John here in chapter 5, he sees the one on the throne, and and then a scroll is presented, and, and no one is worthy, no one is worthy, no one is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen its seals, and so John begins to weep. We think this scroll represents like God's plan for human history. In fact, uh, in statues in the first century world, they would have held these types of scrolls in their hands in statues because this was the emperor's plan for bringing peace to the empire, for ruling the empire, the emperor's plan in his right hand, and no one is worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God, and so John begins to weep, quite literally weep copiously, like ugly crying, anyone? don't have to admit that and then john says this revelation chapter 5 verse 4 and one from the elder said to me do not weep behold look the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered us to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw, notice John heard that the lion of the tribe of Judah had conquered, and when he turns to see that lion, he sees no lion at all. Here's what he sees. He, I saw in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures and in the middle of the elders a lamb standing as slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, having been sent forth into all the land. And he came and received from the right hand of the one sitting upon the throne. In other words, friends, John hears, notice, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And John turns expecting to see a lion, but he actually sees no lion at all. What he sees is a slaughtered and standing lamb. I might put it this way John hears that the prophecy from Genesis chapter 49 has been fulfilled. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and so John expects, as I would and as you would, ready to see a majestic lion, the one who conquers. And instead, he finds a slaughtered lamb that has been conquered. This is one of the the most sort of uh, jarring and assaulting images in the entire Bible. It's one of the greatest reversals one could possibly imagine because what we f- it's easy to follow a lordly lion. Are you with me? It's a lot more difficult to follow a slaughtered lamb. In other words, Jesus is never a lion. He is always a lamb, and He is a slaughtered and standing lamb, and He accomplishes what the lion was to accomplish, but He does it as a slaughtered lamb. And friends, it takes imagination to see that God is with us, suffering alongside of us, and that the way that we conquer is not as a lion, but as a lamb. It's going to take imagination to believe that you will conquer, you will live God's ways by being conquered. It's actually in self-giving and in laying down our life and in being willing to sacrifice ourselves that we actually follow the way of the lamb, but that takes imagination. I don't know about you, in most situations, I get ready to power up. You can't tell but looking at me, but there's a lion inside that's ready to roar. Just You shouldn't clap for that. I'm just kidding. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's right. But what you find, yeah, that's true. But what you find instead is that, uh, that, that desire to power up, John shows us that's actually not what God does. God doesn't do power the way we do power, and God doesn't conquer the way that we conquer. And yet it takes profound imagination to believe that the Savior of the cosmos, the one who rules in the middle of God's throne, is a slaughtered and standing Lamb, and that He is with us in our suffering. This is an aside just for a moment, we'll get to the next scene, but I was teaching a class on Revelation a couple of years ago with like 45 students and one of my students was a relatively new Christian. She had never read Revelation before and I love people who have never read Revelation before because they're open to really reading it rightly because they don't come with all like the weird pop eschatology sub baggage. And so she reads it and her first question, the first class was, so are you telling me that being a martyr is a good thing? and I said, it was good enough for Jesus. And it was such an incisive question that she could see actually that what the book was trying to propose, that winning comes in a very different way than the world conceptualizes winning. That we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our witness. And John says, those who did not love their life even unto death friends, it takes imagination. Fourth, turn over Revelation chapter 7. John wants to remind us that God's redemptive plan is being extended to every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue. Oh man, Revelation chapter 7 opens and you hear the number of those who were saved, 144,000. And that's when you start to sweat because you think, if only 144,000, I'm just not sure I'm going to be one of the ones that 144,000 is the number of those, and and again, this is another moment John hears the number. Are you with me? He hears the number. It's the reconstitution of the people of Israel. It's the the reconstitution of the tribes. The 144,000 God's people are back together again, and then in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, John turns to see the 144,000, and this is what John writes, after this I saw, and behold, it was a great crowd whose number no one was able to count. From every people group, tribe, people, and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Having been clothed in white robes, holding date palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, deliverance to our God and the one sitting upon the throne and the Lamb. John expects to see 144,000, and when he turns, what he finds is people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue. Quite literally in Greek, John says it's myriads of myriads and Kiliads of Kiliads, which for him means I couldn't count it. There were too many people for me to count. And I know David mentioned this in the series last year, but it bears repeating here. You've got to imagine we live in Ephesus. We're in Ephesus this morning. If you've not been and you have the opportunity, I highly encourage that you go. I got to go last year. It was a profound experience. But there are like sixty Christians in the whole city, and you maybe know two or three. You got a small house church of people. Maybe there are ten of you. That's it. I mean, we're talking about the early Jesus movement here. You know, you're a drop in the bucket compared to the rest of the empire. And then this sort of this apocalyptic, prophetic, weird thing arrives from John, and someone is reading it to your little house church community, and you're like, When did all of these people become followers of Jesus? Can someone point me to where the myriads of myriads and Kiliads of Kiliads are? Because I would like to meet those people. It turns out that God has really actually redeemed far more than our small tribe, our small house church. Are you with me here? The vision shows us that the number is not limited, but God is at work beyond us, extending salvation to every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue. Turn over the page, Revelation chapter eight, just a couple more. This is the fifth. John reveals that God hears and responds to our prayers in the midst of injustice. Again, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, And another messenger came and stood upon the altar, having a gold censer, and many incenses were given to the messenger, in order that he will offer all prayers of the holy ones at the golden altar before the throne of God. And the smoke of incense ascended, the prayers of the holy ones from the hand of the messenger before God. And the messenger took the golden censer and filled it from the fire of the altar and threw them into the land. And there were thunders, of voices, lightnings, and earthquakes. In other words, in Revelation chapter 8, John shows us a scene where the prayers of these churches in Western Asia Minor, the prayers of the people are actually rising up like incense before God. I don't know about you, I often wonder if when I pray, I'm just sending a shopping list to the sky. I often wonder if when I cry out and I mourn over the injustices of our world, if God actually hears and he cares, I wonder in the midst of misogyny and heartbreak and racism and tyranny and death, God, are you out there somewhere hearing us or are you deaf to our cries? And again, John shows us a scene to stir our imagination. Actually, not only does he hear your prayers, but as they rise like incense before him, they're being scooped up and they're being mixed with fire from his altar and they're being sent back down into the earth like reverse thunder. That God actually not only hears your prayers, but He is responding to them. It takes imagination. It takes imagination to keep praying in such a way that you believe. Again, believe and imagination are integrally linked, aren't they? To believe that God hears. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, where we just were in a moment just before the Lamb goes to grab the scroll, John says that all the prayers of the people were lifted before Him. In other words, John is trying to offer us an image that shows all the answer to your prayers is coming right now because the Lamb is about to take the scroll. Not only are are your prayers being heard, but God is responding. In other words, Revelation wants to reveal to us that God hears us. Okay, two more. Turn over. Revelation chapter 18, many pages, or a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of scrolling. Okay. John wants to reveal to us that God is going to bring the unjust sovereign systems and structures to an end. Revelation chapter 18, we see Babylon, which is actually Rome, the ruling authority of John's day, and John begins to prophesy or say, hey, wait a minute, Rome doesn't last forever. Here's why. Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. It was a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, prison for every unclean bird, and prison for every unclean beast, having been detested because from the wine of her sexual immorality's passion, she made all the people groups drunk. And the kings of the land committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the land were made rich from the power of her sensuality. It takes imagination, I'm sure, to be in a small house church in Western Asia Minor with with sort of Rome breathing down on your neck to begin to believe that Rome will actually come to an end, that the evil and and the unjust sovereigns and the systems and the structures, those who are are murdering and, and persecuting and trying to conscript you into their worship and their service, that John is saying actually they will come to an end because the new Jerusalem is going to come, that God is actually going to eliminate evil. He's going to bring it to an end. All the uncleanness and the impurity, John just laces this with language from the Hebrew Bible of these unjust cities, they're going to come to an end. In other words, Revelation shows us that God is actually protecting us and He is bringing evil to a close. Okay, one more, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. John shows us that that God will renew, restore, and recreate all things. Behold, the tent or the dwelling of God is with humans. And He will pitch His tent over them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or grieving, because the first have passed away. And the one sitting on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Notice that the one on the throne does not make all new things but makes all things new. And it takes imagination to believe that God doesn't want to scrap all of this. He doesn't want to destroy you or me, but actually He doesn't want to make a new thing. He wants to recreate the good creation He's already made. And it takes imagination to believe that God is going to do this work. In other words, Revelation chapter 21 shows us that God is restoring us and God will restore us. OK, imagination and seven scenes, let me just summarize. I, I read them because, hey, why not read some scripture together? Are you with me? These scenes so, show us seven things. They show us this: God is in the middle of the churches. God rules from the throne of the cosmos. God has conquered evil, not as a roaring lion, but as a slaughtered lamb. Four, God's redemptive plan is extending to every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue. Five, God hears and responds to our prayer. Six, God will bring the unjust sovereign systems and structures to an end. Seven, God will renew, restore, and recreate all things. It takes imagination to see it, to enter into the vision. In other words, maybe I'll put it more simply, if you're taking notes. These visions show us God among us, God above us, God with us, God beyond us, God hearing us, God protecting us, and God restoring us. And so, I want to return to the question once more, how is your imagination? Can you see it? Do you feel it? Can you be swept up in these kind of visions in such a way that you enter back into the the sort of mundane reality of our everyday living and moving and breathing as people who have been transformed by these visions that we can begin to see wherever we're at that God is among us, above us, with us, beyond us, hearing us, protecting us, and restoring us. All of this takes imagination. I think when we start to lose our imagination, we begin to trust in our own ability to hold the church together. I think when we lose our imagination, we will start partnering with the rulers of this age because that's the only way to make effective progress. I think we will succumb to to certain kinds of bullying or coercion or shame because we are afraid or we'll try to protect our own group and we'll push out others or we'll relegate prayer to the realm of unimportance or we'll allow ourselves to become complicit with systems marked by injustice or we will try to build our own utopian society and call it the kingdom of God. And it takes imagination to see differently than the world sees. Hear me, it feels as though the church is falling apart, but look up. God is among us. He's standing in the middle of the church. It feels as though the dragon is ruling the cosmos, but look up, God is above us, ruling upon the throne and steering history towards restoration. It feels as though the only way that we will conquer or win is through violence, but look up, God is with us and we will conquer by being conquered. It feels as though we need to protect our borders and preserve our own tribe, but look up, God is extending salvation beyond us. It feels as though God must be indifferent to our prayers and our cries, but look up, God hears you and God is responding. It feels as though death and Hades have the final word, but look up. God is protecting us, and he will judge and eliminate evil, and it feels as though the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but look up. God is renewing us, and will renew all things. Imagination invites us to look up, to look up, to look up, to see the future and recognize that it belongs to God, to know that the lamb wins and the dragon loses, and we're invited to choose our side. It was a few years ago I taught this uh, class on Revelation, and I had a woman in my class who uh, had been away from faith for a long time and had recently returned to faith, and she thought, well, what do I want to do to be reintroduced to Jesus? Why not study the weirdest book of the Bible, right? And so she comes to my class, and she just loved it. Her and her husband showed up really early every week, and they asked for the notes in advance so they could prepare and think through the content, and, and then she decided she wanted to be baptized. She'd never been baptized before and she asked if I would baptize her, and I'm always honored. Uh, I'm not much of a crier. If you are, I love it. So is my wife. I'm not. Baptisms are always one of those moments where like tears just start to flow, you know, but also I just want to say this as an aside. It takes imagination to believe that when someone's going into those waters, something's happening. Are you with me? So she asks me to baptize her, and so I get down into the water. As you do, we're at like a lake. It's like one of those big ones where we do like 80 in a row, you know, it's, it's a lot. And uh, so she comes into the water, and we do the preparatory work, and I, 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 we get ready, and I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And she comes out of the waters, and she screams at the top of her voice. Like, in, in the, in, like when someone scares you to this, you almost fall down. I almost fell into the water. She came out of the water, and she screamed, the lamb wins and the dragon loses. That was her baptism cry the lamb wins and the dragon loses. This is the mark of her baptism. I'm being baptized. Why? Because the lamb wins and the dragon loses. But it takes imagination. It takes imagination to keep looking up and looking up and looking up and to see that God is among us and above us and with us and beyond us and hearing us and protecting us and restoring us. I have seen the future and it belongs to God. And I wonder if this is true, if we can stir this kind of imagination, how might it change the way that we live in our everyday living and moving and breathing? That's what these visions want to do for us, to allow the Spirit to stir our imagination so that we can see higher and wider and broader. It takes imagination to be swept up into these visions in such a way that we we emerge with renewed perspective, alternative vision, and confounding hope. All of this because, as you heard throughout last year, revelation is not about information, it's about transformation. It's not about being informed about the signs of the times. It's about seeing the Lamb and seeing the throne and seeing the way in which God is at work in the world and seeing the Lamb's army who follows Him wherever He goes, dressed in linen, and see that the Lamb wins in a different way than the world wins. All of it takes imagination to be swept up in it so that we can be transformed. I might summarize everything I want to say this way. If you're taking notes or if you've missed everything that I've said, it's often my line, you know. If you snoozed off, you're going to get it all in one line. Are you ready? Come on, get back to me now. Imagination is a weapon that will enable us to look up, to see higher and wider and broader and beyond that which our ears can hear and our eyes can see. Look, if we want to wage war through worship and witness in the midst of our nation, in your city, here, and in my city in Calgary, it's going to require imagination. Otherwise, we're going to keep pushing up against flesh and blood. We're going to only see what's in front of us, and we're not going to be able to distinguish the voice of the Spirit from all the noise around us. And so as Alex returns here in just a moment, I want to come back to this question once more, how is your imagination? If your imagination has been assaulted, maybe it's been co-opted, maybe you feel as though you've lost your ability to see or you can't really hear the voice of God or you feel weak in the knees, I just want you to know that Revelation wants to help. It wants to help by, by reshaping your imagination, by inviting you into worshiping the Lamb to see God on the throne, to recognize again and again and again that the Lamb wins and the dragon loses. And so my prayer for you and for me in this season is that the Spirit would stir our imagination. That whether it be through Revelation or the rest of Scripture or even that passage we read about Abraham, right? Hope and imagination are tied. Abraham had imagination to see things that he could not yet see, but he trusted God and may we be the same. May may the Spirit stir our imagination. May may the Spirit move you to to be swept up into these visions in such a way that you emerge once more as an agent of the new creation to live now as those who will enter into the new Jerusalem. And so I, I end here once more. My deep concern right now as a pastor is a strange one, but my deep concern for the church in the West is that we've lost our imagination and that we are trying to live and move and breathe and use systems and structures and plans and practices in the exact way that the world does. And we're hitting against a wall. And my concern is just that maybe we've lost our imagination a little bit for what it means to follow this slaughtered and standing lamb. And I don't know you and this situation or this circumstance and you as a church, but I guess I just want to invite us to look up. And so, if you'll uh, close your eyes maybe with me now, I just want to invite the Spirit to come. And maybe just invite the Spirit now, Holy Spirit, come. Just would you stir imagination in us now? Maybe it's one of the visions we read this morning. Maybe it was something that was said, or maybe it's something, God, that you've been pressing on our hearts in this last season. Holy Spirit, would you stir imagination with us as individuals and stir our imagination for our workplaces and our, our family and, and, and for this church and, and the work that you want to do in and through us in the city. And so God, we just, we wait a moment, we, we leave some space now for you, Holy Spirit, to speak and to stir imagination. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.